Welcome to the Ovarian Cancer Education Podcast, a podcast centered around a cancer diagnosis and what that means. A podcast created to help physicians and patients learn from each other, connect, and share stories and knowledge. This episode will focus on clinical trials. All episodes of this podcast can be found at any major podcast app or at www.ovariancancerpodcast.com. I'm Vanessa, and with me today is my co-moderator, Rachel. Thanks, Vanessa. Hi, I'm Rachel. We're going to talk to Dr. Ira Weiner, a gynecologic oncologist, and Jennifer Land, a clinical trials research nurse, both with Carmanos Cancer Institute in Detroit, Michigan, and we will also be joined by ovarian cancer survivors Renee and Sarah. They'll help us understand a bit more about clinical trials, and Rachel and I will help fill in the gaps. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that you or a loved one have been diagnosed with ovarian cancer, which can be a scary and uncertain time. This podcast will help provide information and insight, but there are a wealth of other resources out there for you, and we have included some of those resources in the show notes for this episode. We have also helped develop a patient navigation line with the state of Michigan to help patients find gynecologic oncologists. The phone number for that line is 1-844-446-8727. To start us off, it's important to realize that not every patient is eligible for every clinical trial, and the results of clinical trials vary. What exactly are clinical trials? That's a great place to start. Let's let Dr. Weiner define them for us. Certainly. So clinical trials are are clinical research involving patients. And there are actually a number of different types of clinical trials. But today we're going to focus mostly on what we call interventional trials, which are trials utilizing some sort of intervention, whether that's a new treatment, a new drug, uh, a new surgical instrument or, or procedure. Uh, in order to determine if these are better um, than the current standard of care. There are other types, like prevention and screening trials, but interventional or treatment trials would be focused on people with active cancer. Jennifer Land, a nurse whose job focuses on clinical trials, can tell us about goals. Yes, clinical trials are experiments to develop new treatments and obtain data on safe doses and determine if a new treatment is more effective than standard of care treatment. The goals of clinical trials will be to identify if the treatment can improve overall survival and if it can better the quality of life of a patient. It's important to understand that clinical trials, because they are a part of research, are not approved treatments because there are things we still don't know. Treatments have to go through this research process, these trials, in order to become what we would call standard of care. I feel like getting treatments that aren't the standard of care yet could be intimidating. Though they aren't fully approved, they don't have to be last resorts either. Doctors and other healthcare professionals can help make them easier to understand. Research suggests that patients who participate with clinical trials have overall improved outcomes and survival rates compared to those who don't. Dr. Weiner can tell us a bit about how patients learn about these trials as a starting point. Patients are eligible for clinical trials typically at all stages of their journey. 
And what I mean by that is that there are often clinical trials that we can offer patients as early as new onset diagnosis um, and as late as in patients that have had multiple recurrences. So really the, the concept is, is that when you sit down with a clinician or your provider, you should always be looking at potential options for clinical trials. Let's take a moment to really dive into the details of the different phases of clinical trials. Here is the way the NCI defines the different phases to make it a bit clearer. Phase one tests the safety, side effects, best dose, and timing of a new treatment. It may also test the best way to give a new treatment and how the treatment affects the body and is removed from the body. Today's phase one trials also look for signals of effectiveness, often in very specific types of cancer or disease. They are typically not able to determine effectiveness given the size, but many trials do expand from phase one to phase two or three if there are signs that the treatment is working. Phase two trials test whether a new treatment works for a certain type of cancer or other disease, and they test for safety as well. They are larger than phase one trials. Often, treatments used today are approved directly from phase two trials if they're noted to be significantly better than a historical control. Often, new treatments today are approved directly from phase two trials if they're noted to be significantly better than past treatment options. Often, these studies have no research for comparison and only include the actual intervention that the study is examining. Phase three trials test the safety further and how well a new treatment works compared to a standard treatment. These trials tend to be much larger in order to study the effectiveness compared to that standard of care. This means that some patients may only get the standard of care, but others will receive the new intervention that the trial is testing. Phase four trials study potential side effects caused over time by a new treatment. They also test its long-term effectiveness after it has already been approved and is on the market. Doctors and patients can always be looking for trials, and we have resources listed in our show notes that can help with that. Sarah can tell us about how she found her trial. The way that I found out about clinical trials was near the, probably last month before I finished chemo, my doctor had mentioned to me, I, I was in, actually interested through kind of research of my own doing some kind of maintenance medications, and there was none for my particular cancer. So my doctor near then kind of reached out and said that there was a clinical trial that he knew of through like the hospital and everything like that. And they introduced me to the clinical trial nurse through my, uh, my oncology office. And so I met with her probably about a month before chemo ended and she had presented me with the clinical trial that I'm currently in. Each trial has rules about who can and who can't be a part of it. This is to keep the trial controlled. So one thing that we look at when we uh, look at the patient in front of us or we screen a patient for a clinical trial is what we call eligibility criteria. And the eligibility criteria are really defined by the sponsor of the trial, whether that's the person, the clinician sitting in front of the patient, if they were the ones uh, that designed the trial and are opening it up at their institution, 
whether that's the National Institutes of Health or the National Cancer Institute or multiple different uh, sponsors that can occur uh, internationally or via industry. They very much define the patient population that is to be involved in the trial. And they are very strict about those criteria. So finding out if you're eligible for trials is an important step. Yes. Renee, another clinical trials patient, can tell us about how she found her trial and her experience with qualifying. She told me about a new clinical trial that I might qualify for, and we decided to try to get accepted. It took about a month of driving downstate and having lots of tests to see if I'd qualify. It was a real anxious time because I didn't think I had very many options. Finally, I was accepted and I was approved to start the clinical trial. On the first day, I was again randomized to the control group, which meant the other people in the trial were getting two medications and I would get one. And that drug was Olaparib. Nurseland can talk to us a bit more about what it means to be in or out of a trial. So every protocol outlines who is eligible. This is called inclusion. They have a whole list of it. Each inclusion is different depending on the study, but it, it addresses things like any prior chemotherapy history of how many prior lines of therapy they had. That's inclusion, so there must be exclusion, too. Exactly. Not everyone is eligible. That is called exclusion. That is also laid out in the protocol. It'll address anything if anybody has a significant history that would exclude the patient. So say if it's a drug that we kn- they know it's going to damage the liver, if they have liver issues, that patient would probably be excluded. Trials also have different phases, and those different phases of research have different enrollment needs. What are enrollment needs? Dr. Weiner can talk us through that. So the the question of how patients enroll really depends on the phase of clinical trials. If it's a phase one clinical trial, most institutions have a separate phase one group um, or office wherein those clinical trials are, are run. And the reason is, is that the phase one trials are typically much more involved. For phase two and three trials, most patients can see their oncologist um, to determine if there are any open phase two or phase three trials. And then if they meet those criteria, uh, again, depending what trial it is, um, those may be different. The clinician or their provider would offer them an opportunity to enroll if it's the right time. Can you explain the phases a bit more? For most interventional trials, phase one has a very small number of participants. Phase two will include a larger group of people. Phase three will include an even larger group to study different populations or dosages. And phase four is the final stage before a treatment is approved. Sarah's trial is a phase two trial. I 
know that this medication has been around. It's a phase two medication. So that means it's not a brand new medication to the world, but it is a medication that they know what the body does with it. So it was gave me comfort that that was a medication that wasn't super unknown. I can see why that would make Sarah feel more comfortable. Right. But even with phase one trials, doctors and the clinical trial staff can help patients understand risks so that they can make the decision to join or not. A clinical trial staff. So there are a lot of people involved who can help. Yes. With every step of the process. Nurse Land can talk about how she cares for patients during clinical trials. I would schedule any required screening tests and procedures in order to get them onto the study. Once they're deemed eligible and enrolled into the study, I would continue with them, scheduling every visit. I also see the patient with the physician in the clinic. We would review any labs or any side effects that may have occurred from any previous cycles and review the protocol to see if the patient is able to get the scheduled treatment that day. Nurse Land interacts with patients directly as a clinical trials nurse, but there are more people involved. She can tell us a bit more about different roles. There is a lot of team members that are involved in in getting the patient on the study and through the whole process. Some of the team members would be, there's always a principal investigator, which that would be the physician that's the main overall responsible person of conducting um, the the trial. The clinical coordinators, they have a very big role in the the patient. Um, They're the expert, I would say. They ensure that everything is done with compliance. From the time we sign the patient, they're the ones that would check all the eligibility to make sure that the patient is able to go on study. They would look at all their records They are the main contact person with the sponsor. So there's medical support, and you get to know your team, which might help with the anxiety of being in a trial. Renee felt supported by her team, particularly in her second experience with a trial. In my second clinical trial, I got lots of support and a lot of interaction with my team. Over the years, I've developed relationships with my doctors, all the support people that see me. I feel that I have people that just almost envelop me with care because I'm monitored so closely. If I'm having problems that might be caused by my disease or my medication, they've been responsive. They help me find someone to evaluate me and provide interventions that can relieve the symptoms that I might be having. Okay, great. So let's talk about the process at the doctor's office once a patient knows they're eligible for a clinical trial. The doctor, the clinical trials nurse, or another member of the clinical trials team will go over a consent form with the patient. The consenting process is really important. It's a great opportunity for patients to ask all of their questions. The physician would present the study and go over the study drug and what's required and see if the patient is interested. 
Sometimes we'll have the patient go home with the consent to review it with a family and come back on another day to sign it. They may be overwhelmed at the time that they find out if their diseases got worse, so it's better sometimes if they can think about it. And then that way, if they have any questions, they can write them down and they can be addressed at the next visit. I usually tell them the copy that I send them home with, just write on it because we'll just use another one when you come in. Is part of this consent talking about how information is protected? Yes, that can be very important to patients. Yep, each consent form will review what's called the HIPAA portion of it, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, and it will go over all the privacy parts of it and how their information is protected. So when a patient signs a consent, in the building itself that they're getting treated, if they had to have lab work done and it would go to the lab work at the hospital, it would have the patient's name and identifier on it. But anything that leaves the building, they're just assigned a subject number. All the side effects are reviewed, whether it is the study drug or the study is using a combination of standard of care and study drug, it is all, there's a um, pages that go over every side effect. Any cost that the patient may have or is responsible for is talked about in the consent. Are these trials expensive? I'm sure a lot of people are concerned about that. Trials can often be funded by sponsors, and there are a lot of ways that trials try to reduce as much financial stress as possible. Renee tells us about her expenses. Yes, there have been costs. Um, Thank God the medication is provided uh, and has continued through, I'm now in cycle 115, and I'm so grateful for that. But I live four hours away from the cancer center that I uh, go to for my clinical trial. And that means driving. In the wintertime, I fly. Early on in the clinical trial, I was there every 28 days. In the last few years, my visits have been spread out. And so the costs have gone way down. I was responsible for travel as well as housing. I'm very fortunate to have wonderful insurance, and they have covered the majority of my health care costs. I am still responsible for some co-pays and some deductibles. I think about this and say, how do you put a price tag on being alive? And um, I don't think you really can. And um, I feel so lucky that I have all the resources that I have available to me so that I can be in the study, stay in the study. And um, I hope that other people have those same opportunities. Though Renee had good insurance, people with little or no coverage should still look into trials. Dr. Weiner can explain. Most clinical trials will cover costs of interventions, testing, et cetera, that is not covered by the patient's insurance. So what happens for most clinical trials, um, 
is that the insurance is billed for standard of care uh, interventions. And then any interventions above and beyond that are those which are not considered uh, standard of care are covered by the trial. That's great. If money isn't as much of a problem, more people can participate in clinical trials. Yes, it helps move research forward and gives patients different treatment options to consider at any point in a cancer journey. They aren't always successful, but sometimes they are. We never have all the answers. All we can try to do is the best we can. You know, so that's why I tell my patients that if they need a second opinion to make themselves feel comfortable, then that's the right thing to do. Again, I, I can't speak for everyone in the field. I wish I could. <laughs> um, but sure, no, it, it is important to know that the clinical trials are, are not approved therapies typically. You know, they are research. It doesn't mean that we will not hopefully do better than our standard of care. And it doesn't mean uh, that we won't benefit patients. I mean, I have some clinical patients on clinical trials now for two years when they weren't responding to anything previously. But it, we really can't predict outcomes because that's why we're doing the trial is we're trying to figure out what those outcomes are going to be. And with conventional agents, there's never any we can't predict those outcomes either, of course, right? Even though we have data, we can never predict individual outcomes. Sarah also talks about her experience with uncertainty during her trial. For my clinical trial, I, I think I learned a lot about the fact that it's not as scary as I think I thought it was going to be. I feel that everyone's brains lead clinical trials are a last resort. Your cancer is just everywhere and you're just trying to buy yourself some time. Um, with my clinical trial, it has been like the opposite experience where I feel that like I am still feeling pretty good. I don't have any signs of disease and it has gone very smoothly. Um, clinical trials, I feel, get a little bit of a bad rap that they are something that is a last resort, like your cancer is in 8,000 places and they're just trying to make you feel crummy for two more days. And I feel that for me, a lot of it was kind of scary because we don't know. We don't know how it's going to go. I don't know if it's a placebo. I don't know if it's this. I don't know if it's that. And it's just very much been a very steady and stable situation for me. The power of optimism, like Sarah's, can't be overstated. Renee can talk to us about how she got through the uncertainty of her clinical trial. I want to encourage anyone facing a difficult diagnosis to be their own advocate. Seek out new research and clinical trials, whether it's your first time, your second time, or like me, the third time around. Science is making such advances, such wonderful progress, that when I was first diagnosed compared to what's going on now, there's just no comparison. So remember, nobody knows you any better than you do. And they're always busy. They try their best. But you being your own advocate is so important. The last thing I want to say to people is that some and hopefully many of us will defy the odds and we're going to extend our lives. 
as well as contribute to that knowledge that's going to help those that come after us. And I feel very strongly about that contribution that we can make. That is so nice. That greater purpose must make things feel a lot better emotionally. Absolutely. Dr. Weiner can give us a few resources. So there are, there are multiple resources available on the web. Um, the American Cancer Society talks about clinical trials and involvement. Um, the NIH, or National Institutes of Health, and then NCI um, also taught, has multiple different website uh, pages talking about clinical trials. If you do go to clinicaltrials.gov, when you click on any trial that's there, it will give a synopsis or a summary of the clinical trial. And often I recommend to my patients that they see something that's potentially, uh, that says it's recruiting, they bring it in and we talk about it often in the visit. For many of you listening, you or someone you know has been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. If you're interested in clinical trials, either entering one or learning about a specific trial, the resources that Dr. Weiner shared will be available in the show notes for this episode. As a reminder, This episode can be found at any major podcast app or at www.ovariancancerpodcast.com. We hope this helps you feel like you are not alone and that there are resources available to you. We are hoping to shed some light on issues that some patients experience to help educate and support. Remember that your physician's office is an invaluable resource for you. They are there for you, and it is okay to ask for help. As we find or develop resources, we will continue to list them in our show notes. Thank you again for joining us. The information contained herein is information only. Users are solely responsible for all medical care and services delivered to their patients and all decisions related to such medical care and services. Neither Moxie nor the Regents of the University of Michigan shall be responsible for any delivery of medical care or other services to any patient or any decisions, acts, or omissions of persons in connection with the delivery of medical care or other services to any patient.